Welcome back to Not Alone, a podcast about faith, mental health, and how the church can bridge the gap between them. Today we're going to be discussing anxiety. What do you do when you feel like you're experiencing these feelings, and how do you talk to other people who are also experiencing them? Here are your hosts, Michael McCord, Evan DeYoung, and Lindsay Geist. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of our Not Alone podcast. We are exploring faith and mental health together in quarantine. I'm joined by Lindsay and Michael, two wonderful and wise people. I'll let them introduce themselves. Hey, everybody. I'm Lindsay Geist. I'm a pastor in the North Georgia Conference, as well as a licensed clinical social worker. I have a background of helping churches and individuals uh, navigate anxiety and crisis and uh, figuring out what they want their next steps to look like. And basically, that's why we keep her around, because Evan and I have no idea what we're doing. <laughs> Nothing. So no idea. each week, we come together for a free therapy session. Never did. Definitely don't now. <laughs> free free therapy? Maybe I should start thinking about charging y'all if I'm doing all this work for you. You guys are getting paid? <laughs> Michael, you want to say what you do for a living? Oh, that's right. Well, if you can't tell, I work with young people. Spent my whole life doing it. Uh, I'm a pastor and this member of the South Georgia Conference, but I work in North and South together. Uh, spent um, 20 years working with college students and I it's the thing I love more than anything else is, is helping young people come alive in their faith and in their vocation and um, and send them out in the world to, to, to stir things up. And mm. uh, that's why I think this is so important. What we do here is is trying to help young people and their families and their leaders figure out how to help support uh, high school, college students in their journey in life, especially when they confront challenges that mental health and pressure and anxiety and all that sort of stuff have on. So thanks for joining us. Yeah. little backstory. We had a program that we were going to run around uh, mental health, youth, parents, caregivers, that kind of stuff. And uh, then a global pandemic hint. And our program was called <laughs> They Are Not Immune. It had I'm to sorry, not be called that, that anymore. <laughs> Every time. I mean, we yeah. couldn't have branded that worse. Yeah, well, or better, uh, because we now right. own notimmune.com. So if you would like that URL, we will <laughs> let it go for a pretty penny. Uh, so this is great. Uh, so we are taking some of those materials and conversations that we had had behind the scenes, and we are just kind of getting those down in video and podcast format. So we're so excited for you to join us. Uh, when they say North Georgia and South Georgia Conference, they're talking about for the United Methodist Church, just in case you're not uh, in that That's world. Uh, so this week, we're picking up a little bit of where we left off. And we, we left off last week with a statement, uh, many statements, but a statement that said a scripture that gets taken out of context a little bit and you. Uh, to just kind of uh, just cover over the situation and the reality of what we're dealing with. And that was the statement, Lindsay, that do not be anxious about anything and how that's just what you do. It's just, oh, well, the Bible says don't be anxious, so just don't, and then you're going to be fine. So we're going to we're gonna tail that into some anxiety talk today. Uh, can you just explain kind of from a cl clinical perspective what anxiety is? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad that we're starting uh, with my favorite scripture, the one that sends me on a soapbox. Um, mm -hmm. I'll try to avoid that right now and just start with what anxiety is. Um, anxiety is in and of itself neutral. So anxiety can be something that as created in us can be incredibly helpful um, or incredibly harmful. So let's say you are getting ready for a first date and you probably have some butterflies in your stomach. Um, Michael, your face is like, oh, I remember that moment. Um, and you get some butterflies in like your bats. stomach. <laughs> <laughs> okay, or bats in your stomach. And, and you start maybe sweating a little bit, your heart's beating a little bit faster. Um, and, uh, you know, sometimes you can't catch your breath in quite the same way. And you start asking all those what ifs in your head as <laughs> you're getting ready for it. Um, that is good anxiety. Like you want to be excited and nervous in a good way. Um, let's say you have a test coming up, uh, and you're feeling a little anxious about the test. My guess is that in response to that feeling, you're probably going to study. Um, or I hope that you would study. Um, so both okay. of those sometimes, um, both of those examples are where anxiety can be helpful. 
Um, it's a natural feeling in us, one that can serve as motivation and represent some of our excitement. What happens is that sometimes anxiety can start tipping towards the other side of the scale for us and begin to paralyze us. That's when we start asking a lot of those what if questions or we get caught in a loop and um, we can't move into the excited part of anxiety. Instead, it's paralyzing us and locking us in. That's when anxiety starts to become um, harmful and concerning. Michael, from a theological perspective, well, the way that we typically will approach anxiety, you know, like is just, you know, flip to the back of the Bible, Google a little bit, like what does the Bible say about anxiety? Or we look for anxious. And so we see these scriptures. Where do you think we generally kind of fall initially from like the church perspective? Or where have we come from in the past? And how did we get to where we are today? Because I feel like society is very anxious and anxiety gets talked about a lot. We have a lot of students who one of their primary things that they say they struggle with is anxiety. Uh, and then I feel like the approach that we've had theologically and as a church has been not really congruent or even helping with what we're currently dealing with in society? Well, I think the big challenge, I think overall, just if I could give a, a quick view of theology today and biblical narrative is that we, um, so we come from a scientific age where the things that we read are prescriptive or are or descriptive in the sense that they define things. They're definitive. Um, and so we read news stories and it says the facts or someone's interpretation of the facts, at least. Um, we read textbooks and they teach us, right? And so we have really, really honed our ability to read a text from that perspective. And so when we encounter the scriptures, we can't help but but use those same skill sets in interpreting scripture. And so when we read the Bible, we see it as, as a sort of a definitive. <laughs> I'm sorry. My dog is great. My mom. Can you hear it? Oh, God. I heard George. 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 No, George. No. This is another example of real life in quarantine is that none of us are in perfectly normal, quiet places. Oh, so is it making is it making you a little anxious, Michael? It is. It is. Yeah, last episode <laughs> our robot vacuum was slowly approached the hallway behind my office. And so it was like because we got one of the like really cheap ones and it's like <laughs> I heard it coming and I was like, Ugh. Like trying to turn it off, but you know, you can't control it. So, Michael, so, I really enjoyed what you're saying no, about a perspective interpretation right. of scripture. So, oh my gosh. Uh, <laughs> so 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 we we can't help but when we when we encounter scripture, we look at it from the same lens that we look at a newspaper or a textbook. Mm. And we and we think of it as prescriptive in the sense that we're gonna read it and there's these are things we should do, and these are these are laws that have been made. In some case, some of the language is law-oriented, right? Part of it is. Right. But I think when you look at the passage, the Philippians passage that that is often quoted around anxiety, um, is not a law like go therefore, do not be uh, do not be anxious or you will go to hell kind of statement, sure. right? It's 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 Paul's attempt to encourage the church not to be anxious that you're not alone. And he's writing this by the way, from a jail cell probably. Um, so he, if, the, if there was anyone who, who had the right to be anxious, it would be Paul. And maybe, maybe in fact, what he's writing is sort of self-help too. Mm -hmm. It's don't be anxious. You're not alone. We're in this together. Um, and, and so it's intended to be words of encouragement to remind of people who are anxious, who are under threat, who, who are imprisoned, who are going through hurt. Uh, don't be anxious. You're not alone. God's with you. We're in this together. But because of our prescriptive language that we're so used to, the way we interpret the scripture is we see that as, a, as an imperative or, or, or an order, an edict. Don't be anxious. Right. And if you are, it's a sign of weakness. Yeah, well, it's Paul often been, not to. It's often you know? been used in almost a shaming way. Um, that if you are anxious, then clearly your faith is not strong. 
um, right. instead of right. there's not a need to be anxious um, because God is with you and uh, you're not alone in this. And so you don't need to worry. It's not shameful if you do worry, but you don't need to. Right. Yeah. It yeah, seems I, like, I, like it's, yeah, go ahead. No, sorry. Sorry. No, I was going to say, it just seems like if somebody's in an, in like a negative ruminating loop, the, the answer for them to get out of it is not for you to just say, Hey, don't be in that. You know, like it seems like there needs to be something else there. And so that I think really helps to illustrate, uh, I think some of the challenge of when, most of us have probably read that or felt that, or someone may have even spoke that to us when we felt anxious. And it seems like when you're not anxious already, it's a great reminder and it's kind of, it kind of helps you hedge around it. But when you are in the midst and struggling with those moments of anxiety, someone just telling you to just don't be anxious may kind of put you over the edge. Even I think it can be uh, sometimes even more harmful than helpful at times because it's just, it's, it's a good thing at the wrong time, which can happen. Right. I mean, I think you, Culturally, we are um, very action oriented. So, so we in, in young people. I speak specifically about high school and college students. They live the majority of their life off of a syllabus, and a syllabus explains the minimum things you have to do to get an A, or to get a B, or to C, or what. If you don't do these, you're going to fail. Right. So your whole your whole like world from the time you're in kindergarten through, well, now pre-K and preschool before that, like you, you've, you're shaped in this life cycle where there are minimum standards required to pass. And when when you live in that sort of way of thinking, which, which by the way, not all cultures live in that same way of thinking as we do, um, and passing and failing is a totally different idea in other cultures than ours. Um, is that we think the Bible then is our syllabus. And if we don't make this minimum threshold, then we're not saved or we're not really faithful. And, and it becomes this, this, this cycle of never really living up to the expectations that are set before you. And um, because the idea of a syllabus is they're reasonable expectations. These are things you can do. They're attainable, right? But the biblical standards... Do not be anxious. Uh, uh, turn the other cheek. You know, I, I, they're just there's hyperbole soaked right. throughout Scripture as a way to teach. But if you see that as a syllabus, as literal, then then you're never going to measure up. It just it's just not possible. It also implies lots that certain things are choices. Like I can just choose to not be anxious. Um, and that's not something, or choose to not be in a depressive state, um, or choose to not be sad or grieving. These are not things that we're actively choosing to be in these emotional states. They are our natural response to experiences um, that we go into these feelings. And so, uh, acting like we can just pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and choose something different is not kind to ourselves and a not realistic. Yeah. I, I, I guess my question around that is that you, you talked a little bit about how everybody has anxiety, but you say everybody's going to experience that it, it in itself is a neutral emotion. If I heard you correctly, but mm -hmm. I, I guess at what point, like what signs and symptoms and things like that are you looking for that say, oh, like maybe I'm experiencing a, a different level of anxiety. I've moved past just the natural neutral, like I got spooked, I got anxious. Yeah, I would say that when uh, your worry or concern starts to become excessive and starting to become paralyzing. So we're all going to ask what if questions, but if we start asking those to the point uh, that we can't get out of that loop and there's excessive worry, uh, that's when I start becoming concerned along the way. Uh, and sometimes you'll have difficulty even controlling that worry that uh, you feel like there's no way to talk yourself out of it or calm yourself down at all. You'll probably also notice you have a hard time concentrating 
on things Mm -hmm. um, and staying focused on something that can be a key symptom along the way. There's also some physical symptoms that you'll experience. Uh, You'll probably easily be fatigued and worn out, uh, irritable. Uh, Being irritable is a common sign of uh, something deeper going on. Mm Uh, you'll notice when you're anxious, you'll feel a lot of muscle tension. Um, you notice that when you're feeling worried or stressed, your shoulders start going up higher and higher. Um, or everything, Michael, your shoulders are way high today. That I can tell how you're feeling about all this. <laughs> and this what happens. Exactly. That's what happens. When you find yourself walking around like that, Evan, then you probably want to yes. go talk to somebody. My shoulders connected to my ears. I just, I just want to note for the record that Lindsay's currently defining how I'm feeling. I've got my, my shoulder hurts. Mm-hmm. I'm irritable. No, mm-hmm. she's, she's defining my very characteristics. It's true. Like I went through this anxious thing last night. I don't know why I had just, I, I, yesterday afternoon, I just started feeling anxious and I went to bed feeling anxious and I had Ooh, very anxious cool. dreams, like overly cool. vivid dreams, you know? And so then I woke up today exhausted and my shoulder hurt and, you know, and I go through these cycles. I mean, it's, it's true. I just go through them. Um, and I would think, I would think it, and I was thinking about this call today in light of this and just sort of just trying to experience the anxiety that was washing over me. Cause it was really, I mean, honestly, I have little to be anxious about in this moment. There's not, I don't have anything pressing I, this way. And that's actually maybe why I'm anxious. Well, and what um, I hear you saying so. also is that um, anxiety doesn't always have a reason of why it's triggered. Uh, that's that's true. I think that's when usually um, we're more capable of managing our anxiety and it feels a little more neutral uh, when we can explain where it's coming from. When it starts bothering us is when we can't figure out why it got triggered along the way um, because we're a cause and effect society. We want to know where it came from. Um, And Michael, I love that you said that it really bothered your sleep last night too, because sleep disturbance is a key one of knowing when anxiety starts becoming concerning, Um, as well as restlessness. You just can't sit still. You're always feeling fidgety. Um, It just feels like everything's weighing on you. (laughs) You're just defining Evans every day. I might have undiagnosed Uh ADHD. So, so what, wait a minute, let me, let me say this caveat in here as a good clinician, I will say, do not listen to this list and then self-diagnose. We are not WebMD. Like you are not all dying of of cancer or the most obscure thing on the face of the planet. Okay. All of these things can happen to us and again, be neutral and normal. Right. Where it is concerning is, again, when it starts paralyzing you for an extended period of time, that's when I would say um, maybe talking to somebody. Again, do not diagnose yourself. Um, We love to do that. I typed in my symptoms. (laughs) I did type in my symptoms and it it says that I have menopause. (laughs) I I mean, it always says the strangest (laughs) stuff. Okay. I mean... Don't diagnose yourself. What you can say is, okay, I'm noticing a bunch of these symptoms about myself. I wonder if that means my anxiety is at a place that I need to talk to somebody about it. What is that? Use it as a red flag instead of a diagnosable level. Right. Well, okay. So I, I think sometimes with anxiety, it turns to like your brain saying this could happen. To then there's just like, this will happen. And I don't know mm-hmm. if if you've experienced that or had conversations with folks where it's like, um, especially if you've like been in a car accident or seen a car accident, like I'm, mm-hmm. I'm I, okay, I'm driving, you know, it's always in your mind. I have to be careful. I could get in an accident. You're like, that probably won't happen. I'll take care of it. You know, I'm in control of this situation as much as I can be. And then you get in the car and it's like, I'm going to, I'm going to get in a car accident. Like someone is going to make a mistake and and then I and now I'm paralyzed and I can't drive or you know I've 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 had a lot of folks that Or you start having a panic attack as you're driving. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I don't Short know of breath, I, like, what do you you know chest racing things like that and then you have to pull over sometimes. It it seems to me that that would be 100% if you've experienced that even one or two times that would be a definitely go talk to somebody, right? mm mm-hmm. Mhm. Like even one yeah. time, it's like, that's, 
that, that well, seems like the underpinnings. The, o- the other thing I want to say is that you can always go talk to somebody. There does not need to be like this huge moment that says, okay, I need to get a therapist now. Um, you can always benefit from having that safe space to be able to process everything that's happening in life. If you're noticing those things about yourself, like having a panic attack and having to pull over on the side of the road, maybe that's even more of a reason to go talk to somebody. But we can all benefit from learning additional skills from talking to a therapist. Well, yeah. And I think if we go back uh, a few episodes ago, talked about that this idea of becoming vulnerable and learning how to be vulnerable with people and that, that there's a first stage too. I think if, I think anxiety is a normal part of the human experience. So just, I won't put that out there. It's completely normal mm-hmm. to be anxious and to have moments yeah. of anxiety, even to have moments of anxiety that, that may feel overwhelming at points. Mm-hmm. It, it, the, the first step is to have somebody you could talk just just what I found in my experience, particularly working with college students, is uh, college pressure can be particularly anxious producing uh, and very because they're very powerful moments where you have maybe lots of things do at once. You, you don't feel equipped enough to do them. Pressures from the family. You're away from home. Like there's this it's a perfect melting pot or whatever uh, to, to create anxious moments in. And often just saying I'm anxious is a release mm-hmm. uh, because what what really propels anxiety is what you were kind of talking about, this, this internal dialogue I mean, that you kind of get into when you start getting the anxious. The loop you get caught in. Yeah, and you get, and you get stuck. And, and then and the more you're in your head, the less you're talking to other people, the more real it feels and mm-hmm. the more pronounced it feels. And so just like having a friend and just being willing to say, you know, I'm really feeling anxious. I have no idea why, or I, I don't feel like I can do this test or, you know, right. just that alone is a, is a release. And then, and then I want to kind of flip the the script a little bit in, in saying that I think the more, what, another thing I've, I've kind of experienced is sometimes when you're the people who are really anxious and need, who are stuck and it's debilitating have a hard time pulling out. Like they have Mm -hmm. a hard time recognizing that they need help. And so maybe flip it on the other side is like, what are some things I can do if, if I notice that one of my friends, or if I notice that my teenage son or daughter is in this loop and they don't seem like they're recognizing how destructive their anxiety is in their life. What are some of the things I can do as an outside person to try to help someone who's in that space? I think asking them about some of what's going on inside their head, um, getting them to start talking out that loop a little bit uh, to see if they recognize it. And maybe even sharing some of your own observations of what you're seeing happening in that loop along the way. Um, And then again, encouraging to say that talking to somebody is about helping them learn some new ways to handle things because it sounds like the ways that they're using right now are feeling tiring um, and aren't working as well as they used to for them. great language. Um, And so when our patterns and our coping skills don't work for us as well as it used to, then it's helpful to go to an outside source and say, what's a new tool that I can learn Um, that might provide something different. Because I will say that the coping skills that we first used when we were, you know, 10 or 12, to then 17, to then 22, to now much older than that. um, You like that stop there that I was like, they don't, they don't allow Um, (laughs) us to throw temper tantrums. Like, it's culturally not appropriate for me to lay on the floor and start screaming. They do, even though that's really what I want to do. You mean that you know, once you are in your 30s and 40s, you cannot uh, do that anymore? Okay, shouldn't let's just say, I'm just saying, I'm just saying, you're culturally not appropriate. (laughs) (laughs) I think the tantrum manifests itself in a very different way as adults, yeah. I mean, again, that irritability is common thread throughout everything. It just shows up differently. So, I I mean, again, we keep going back to this vulnerability and dialogue. It's about opening dialogue and saying, um, I'm 
I care about you and I'm concerned that it sounds like this is really weighing on you. Um, or it's, it appears like you're getting really worn out or caught in this loop. And um, I want to provide some support. And maybe you're somebody on the outside that thinks, I don't even know what to do. You don't have to personally provide all the support and say, I will coach you through this. You can say, Mm -hmm. I'd love to get you connected to somebody that can give you a few tips and skills. There are groups that meet on college campuses about anxiety. There is individual counseling. Um, There are groups for high schoolers that happen at counseling practices around the country to give you some additional learning skills. This is something that is incredibly common. Um, So if you are somebody that is looking into this, you are not the only one along the way. And again, anxiety is common. I mean, Michael, you were talking about uh, kind of thinking back to anxious moments. And I immediately went back to several that I experienced uh, in my teenage years. and, and I am not somebody, I will say right now, that I am not somebody that regularly struggles with anxiety, um, but I have had some really anxious, um, anxiety-provoking moments along the way. Um, I think about preparing to go to college and what that was like and what that felt like. I mean, I moved halfway across the country to go to college near nobody I knew, um, and there was this anxious feeling in my gut for a long time that took a while to settle about it all. Um, And then I think about the other theme you talked about, you know, looking at a syllabus at the beginning of the semester or all this prescriptive stuff. The week all the syllabi would come out at the beginning of a semester, high school, college, grad school, I would literally have a meltdown and go, how am I ever going to make it to the end of the semester? Um, And my mom and I joke about it to this day that she knew that phone call would come that first week where I was like, I'm not going to be able to do this. She's like, oh my goodness, you can. I mean, it continued through grad school. I was an adult that was living on my own, caring for myself. And I would still call my mom and go, I'm not going to make it. Um, And I would normally cry and have a full meltdown and um, my heart would be racing and I would feel overwhelmed. And then I would find that a few days later, as I started doing something, it didn't paralyze me in quite the same way anymore. Um, And so that is natural anxiety that can also feel like a wave of overwhelm, but can sometimes go away. For people that are being... uh, that are stuck in an anxiety loop, a lot of times that first wave doesn't ever stop. You Mm, just keep getting hit and hit and hit. And when it doesn't dissipate, that's when it can feel exhausting and overwhelming and it's helpful to reach out. Um, We're all used to getting hit with one wave that might knock us down. But when we feel like we keep getting hit with them and we cannot find a way to find our footing again, that's when it's helpful to reach out to somebody. Lindsay, I think that's a really helpful way to help some of us who haven't experienced sort of chronic anxiety or debilitating anxiety mm-hmm. understand what people are going through. Because I think everyone has had those moments. I mean, I certainly, mm-hmm. I start new classes on May 5th uh, for, for my class that I'm in now. And and it's like, I'm looking at the doc. I'm like, there's no way I don't have time. Are you, so you, you going to call one of us on May 5th? Yeah, I'm, like, gonna, I'm yes, never going to yeah, make it. I'm never going to do this. I'll I mean, you guys, I'll give you my mom's, I'll give you my mom's phone number. You guys have been with me. I'm going to call Lindsay's mom because my mom will be like, suck it up. No, she she's, she's, she's very empathetic and kind. I'll give you mom's she's number. She'll help you out. But, yeah. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, we've all been there. But to think about getting that that feeling every time you wake up mm-hmm. um, or Can multiple times a day, you think about how debilitating, how painful, how hard that would be. And that's why, you know, I... I Correct me if I'm wrong, but a lot of times that kind of chronic debilitating anxiety often leads to depression. Uh, and it we can, can be very interwoven. Car- it gets or, confusing, yes, yeah. especially in teenagers. I will say that it is more tightly interwoven in teenagers than it is in almost any other age group. 
um, that a lot of the symptoms can look somewhat overlapping. Um, mm -hmm. And even teenagers in the middle of it themselves can struggle to figure out some of that. That is normal. Um, so again, why you shouldn't WebMD and define yourself, uh, that it's helpful for somebody else to kind of piece that apart and figure out what's, uh, what's kind of the chicken and the egg or what's causing something else or what's looking like something else because it can be deeply intertwined. So I think a lot of us, when we approach problems, we like to fix things. It generally, <laughs> it's like, okay, there's, there's an issue. There's a challenge. I want to fix Michael, it. Michael, never, <laughs> never, <laughs> never, <yeah>. never. <laughs> I'm not at all a fixer. No. Mm -mm. And so you've encouraged us a lot to not be overly prescriptive and to not have to be the one who necessarily fixes things. And I think that just in support and encourager is something that a lot of us that like to problem solve really struggle with. And one thing that I've really appreciated has been a lot of the language that you give around those things. Like what are some good phrases to get started with supporting somebody with anxiety and some things that I've, I've heard you say earlier that I, I, I just kind of want to bring up again. It was like, it, it seems like what has helped before isn't helping as much. It seems like this is tiring you out, those kind of things. What kind of language would you give for somebody to just encourage? Because I feel like when you try and fix the problem, the problem isn't actually a tangible problem a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. Well, I think we need but to be careful. Scripture, right? <laughs> just say, quote, quote, Paul's letter to the Philippians. Yeah. <laughs> Saying, do not be anxious about do anything. Do not be anxious. Oh, goodness. Um, I mean, I think saying this sounds really hard right now. Mm -hmm. sitting with people in those feelings. I mean, think back to our conversations about vulnerability and feelings, sitting in it without trying to jump to the end of the story. We don't like things that are uncomfortable. We don't like any pain. We don't like any suffering. We don't want to see anybody else hurting. So when we see somebody anxious, our natural inkling is to fix it. What would it be like if we just sat in that, that anxiety and sat, say, that sounds really overwhelming and just stayed there. Like you didn't have to say anything else. You're just acknowledging that feeling that the person has. And sometimes that is enough to just sit in it with somebody to validate that they're not crazy. They're not the only one that's ever experienced this. There's nothing wrong with that feeling and just sit in it. I think is the best way to care for somebody initially. I also want to say um, that I really appreciated our conversation last week about really being present and mindful in the moment and what it looks like to be with someone. I was on a call with someone who had experienced some loss in their life just yesterday. Uh, and mm -hmm. I, you never know, I mean, you never know. And I mm -hmm. literally thought back to our conversation and I said, okay, like, God, this is, I feel like this is you have prepared me for this and mm -hmm. you have equipped me to do this. And I, I've had a lot of conversations with folks who have suffered loss and I have never felt so connected and empowered than I did in that moment. So I, I do want to say like that kind of report back and say that I, it was, it was, it was deeply, it was way more emotional. I felt more engaged. I felt like I was actually there for them, even though we were just on the phone considering the circumstances. And so um, that like, I just want to encourage everybody that like that, that really like leaving space to sit in it and recognizing that just something is, is bad. It's not an ideal situation. It is, it, it feels weird for the first like five seconds, but there's, there's a lot of meaning there and, and just being there and being present. So I really, I really appreciated uh, you guys wisdom there. And I think what you just named is that it works in so many different settings. Yeah. It, it doesn't just have to be grief and loss. It can be anytime somebody admits something challenging or says something really deep and real, uh, sitting in that with them is the biggest gift you could give that person. Mm. Not trying to move on, not trying to fix it, just sitting in it with them for a moment makes them feel heard makes them feel valued and makes them feel loved. Which, you know, going back to a theological framing is, is precisely what the Emmanuel, the God with us, the, the Jesus, mm -hmm. the God incarnate coming 
and and to be with us was to sit with us mm-hmm. to experience loss and heartache and challenge and anxiety and depression and sadness and joy and friendship and falling out and betrayal like the full gamut of human emotion and experience the whole idea is that through all of that god is with us you are not alone um and and i and again you know i think that's what Paul's trying to, in his own way, convene to us is that you're, you know, you, you've, you're with this incarnate God who longs to sit with you uh, in the the hardest of times, um, and to say, you know, I've, I'm with you, I've, I've experienced hurt before, um, and I'm here for you. I mean, I think those that just, it seems, it feels overly simplistic when you talk about yes, it. and it seems ridiculously hard to actually do it. Yes. Mm-hmm. But when so. you do it, yeah. when you do it, you're like, wow, this is amazing. Like, like silence and presence is really all that's needed. But that, that those things can be incredibly transformational for somebody. And when you are in that silence and presence, you can almost always feel God. And I love those moments Hmm. that you can know that God is tangibly with us. I mean, the Holy Spirit was sent to comfort us and be present with us. Um, And, and I think those moments of being are beautiful glimpses of God. I absolutely. Uh, As we kind of, start to wrap up for today i want to revisit one little thing that i think we left a little bit unanswered that i I want us to do yeah michael we talked a lot about the kind of prescriptive nature of the way that we approach the world and church and scripture and our families Uh, i think one thing that is i think we all want to try and facilitate is a home base environment, whether that's with our friend groups, close co-workers, families, that is can be a refuge from those challenges and the stressors and the pressures of, of the world around us and that prescriptive nature. Michael, what would you say are some tips and ways that you can start conversations and facilitate making our sphere with the people in our lives a place that we can start to potentially move away from that and create a little bit of space where there maybe hasn't been any. Well, two things that come to my mind right off the bat is, so when I uh, encounter a student who I think is dealing with something and it could be just a sort of a big something, I don't know, something's going on. Maybe they're not, I can't tell they're anxious or depressed, or I just know that something seems off. My first step is to say, Hey, can we, you are you do you like riding bikes or walking or something like that and uh usually i can get a student to walk or an adult for that matter we can go for a walk and um i did that my old job a lot when i actually worked in a building with people is we would just take a walk around the block and um what was that like when we worked in a building with people yeah yeah it wasn't that great it was Uh, different yeah but um you know, when, when people do something physical, it breaks down the barriers that exist in their brain, right? So you, you we, we by nature, if, if I were to walk into your office or if I was to go to um, my child and just try to jump into a deep conversation, there's lots of barriers that exist but that I put up uh, a fear and anxiety about me being a good parent and like being doing this well. And it just feels awkward. You know, all those parent child interactions where everything feels really awkward as a parent, like that's because you give off this insecurity, which is natural and they're giving off this insecurity. And so it's, it feels like this wall of awkwardness between the two of you. I found that if you walk together and you do something physical together, if you, if you play tennis together, you ride a bike, whatever, like anything like that, that requires that um, will often break down that sense of awkwardness. And so you can just start to have a conversation and just start to ask some questions and listen and, and be present and you can, and it's a whole lot more socially acceptable to walk and be silent because you're breathing 
than it is to sit across the table from somebody and try to have a serious conversation for the first time. So like, I think a great way to die, to start developing kind of relationships that you think have potential to be more vulnerable or, or if you think someone's going through something is to maybe talk about going for a walk. If that's not possible, the other, the other things, um, tools are, are meals and coffee. That's why we campus ministers meet at coffee shops, because if you can take long, it's socially acceptable to take a long sip on a cup of coffee and sort of savor it and not say anything. And that's a way of us dealing with the silence. And so until we're okay with silence, and that goes for us as practitioners or, or as parents or, or as good friends who are trying to help is we, we have the same, it, we're, we, the awkwardness Actually, the awkward, awkwardness is probably more palpable for us because mm-hmm. we're attempting to do something yeah. than it is for them to sit in their own silence, right? So, so it's about us. Um, and then, the, you know, the other thing I always, I always encourage campus ministers to do is to have desk toys or, or, or do puzzles or or play like all anything something you to do with your hand, with. right? Because you got a lot of energy. There's a lot of built up energy around this, and so. Um, I think if you're if you're interested in trying to start that kind of relationship, or you're trying to interact with someone who you think is, who 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 might benefit from a a supportive relationship, is to come up with some way to do something else, and then probe, ask questions, share a little bit, join with them, uh, and then be be ready to be silent and let them talk. Um, those are just some kind of my four practical tips about how you might enter into those um, kinds of relationships. I, one, and one one thing that I really appreciate from both of you and really take away from is some like kind of example language of just actually what is a phrase that you would use to be supportive of someone or to kind of let you like let them know that you care about them and that you're supporting them to open that door. Michael and Lindsay, like if you were saying that to someone, what like what words would you use? What sentence? How would you start it? How would you start the initial conversation? Is that what you're saying? I just, I think a sentence or two that you would use to let someone know that you care about them and that you're supportive of, of what they're going through. I think you guys both formulate language in a way that is really easy to latch onto. And so I think those having some specific sentences or examples of what that would look like kind of modeling it uh, could be helpful. Well, Evan, I've noticed that you just seem a little off today. I don't know. When we got started today, I just, you usually have this kind of like energy and all that about you that and it just didn't seem the same today. You would, you've been going through anything? Like what's your day been like today? It's very kind of you to ask. I am stuck on a video call with two people who. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think the the key to being a, a good friend is just observing, just take note, be mindful of your friends, you know? And when you get that, we all have it. It, it, Seriously, before this, before we started recording, Lindsay asked Evan, if we see, all right, because he's kind of quiet today. And it, it, and then, you know, we found out you went, you had a friend yesterday that you had to talk to who went through some loss that might be actually impacting you in some way mm-hmm. um, or you haven't really, you know, or you just don't have the same level. So, so those, those hunches are, are there because you've been observant of your friend, you know them, and there's something, something doesn't seem quite right. They don't seem um, quite like them. And I will yeah. say that most people that come into my counseling office, when I say, what brings you in here, they go, I just don't feel like myself. Mm-hmm. So you as a friend um, or a parent or a leader, if you are noticing that about somebody else, I think it's okay to not have all the answers to just say, you've seemed a little bit different lately, or how are you really doing? We, we go in passing saying, Hey, how are you? But how are you really doing during all of this? Um, I think is is a huge gift to be able to ask somebody. I've been practicing that even more in the middle of this quarantine. Of uh, mm-hmm. instead of just going, "Hey, how are you today?" Going, "Okay, what's today been like for you?" Or how how has this week really been? Um, what's been the best part and what's been the hardest part? right now. 
sometimes asking uh, both that positive and uh, negative language gives people permission to feel both of those, that you don't just have to have the positive answer mm-hmm. to it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, sometimes I know too, like, if I know it's midterms, I might start a conversation with just saying, gosh, this is, these are hard weeks. There's a lot mm-hmm. going on. Are you doing all right? Because I know it's been hard for me. Um, so part of it's permission, because I think permission granting is huge yeah, when it comes modeling, to feelings and mm-hmm. modeling saying it's okay to, because I, I find, um, and this is, this is a, a, a stereotype and you should never use stereotypes to interact with things, but, but I'm going to share it anyway. I'm going to roll my um, eyes at you before yeah, you've even started. I mean, yeah. come on. I, I, I have, uh, I've had much more, a much more of a challenge getting young men to talk about feelings and then, than my, my young women there now mm-hmm. they they talk about feelings very differently. But what I, what I learned along the way was I had to sort of show men how to talk about feelings. Mm-hmm. Uh, Modeling and, and use, permission granting. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. You know, to that I feel and like I'm sad. Um, those like, because, because in our culture, <laughs> Feel it, feelings wheel out. The feelings wheel. I love it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In our culture, we, we, we try to tell men that, that they're not supposed to feel anything. Correct. Except mm-hmm. for bravado. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, but on the flip side, um, you know, I, I, I have a daughter and I'm constantly up against this narrative that they don't need to show their emotions. She's very, she's, she's, She's full of life in every manner, but people prescribe her because she's a girl. She's just emotional. Mm -hmm. Um, And that those emotions aren't, you know, you got to learn how to control your emotions. And so it's just really put together and, and have it all together. So, so being able to get uh, young women to talk, sort of think about their emotions the way that they don't feel bad about having them. No um, fear of being too much. That's right. That's right. Um, that's, that's the right. phrase so, that's often yeah. used later for women, yeah. that expressing your feelings, you are being too much for somebody, which is not true. The same way that men are not allowed to have feelings. That's not true either. Right. And, and, and that's the thing about stereotypes and cultural expectations mm-hmm. that we load up on top of people is, um, you know, women will talk about emotion, but they're not supposed to have it. And they instantly regret it. And there's this like dueling mm-hmm. fight within them. And then men are taught to avoid emotion at all costs. And so they don't have the vocabulary um, and the experience to talk about them in a meaningful way. And so it's like this, even though they're both experiencing emotion very much in similar ways, it's just culture has said, this yeah. is the way you talk about it. And this is the way you talk about it. So I think modeling is just really, really important. I think a lot of the time the illiteracy that we have with it also partially because it grinds everything to a halt. I think a lot of the time we're so product focused instead of process focused. We want the end result. We want to be a good person. We want to meet a goal. We want to have tangible success like you talked about earlier. And it creates a scenario where it's no wonder that we are seeing spikes in anxiety and challenges with our just mental and emotional health because the pressures are literally infinite and our access to something that shows us that we're not quite as good as we could be in any single category has never been greater. So it's not a surprise that it can be overwhelming, that it can be challenging. And I think what is encouraging to me is that you've empowered us to be able to make our spheres of influence, make the people that we interact with safe spaces for conversation, for support, for advocacy, for vulnerability, vulnerability. And that if we do that, in turn, we're also doing the best thing that we can to support one another when it comes to anxiety. Um, so as we kind of wrap up, uh, I'd love to hear final thoughts. I'm once again, very appreciative for all your wisdom. I, I mean, I think we've summed it up pretty well that anxiety is something that is completely normal to experience. If you're starting to feel like it's paralyzing you, um, then reach out to somebody, be it a friend, a family member, a mentor, teacher, leader, pastor, um, 
and hopefully they can sit with you in that feeling and then maybe even get you connected to a clinician um, or, and we haven't talked about this today, but maybe even get you connected to some medication support as well. There's a number of us that uh, need different things. And so there is no shame in needing additional support. Yeah, I, probably a whole episode we could talk about medicine and chemicals, mm-hmm. and that that some some of these things are 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 created out of experiences, and some of these are chemical, and some of them mm-hmm. interact together, and and so um, not not everything can be fixed with a walk and a talk. Um, but I do think a lot of help can come from. That's a great place to start. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. To figure out where your journey is. What I would say is to the leaders, to the parents, um, is to just start now, wherever you are in your place as a leader or a, a parent, um, is to talk about anxiety yourself, to be, to be open about it. Give examples, concrete examples about where you've been anxious and how you've gotten through it. And, and because you're modeling by talking about it, you know your child is going to go through anxiety mm-hmm. and might even have anxiety attacks, sort of these acute moments of anxiety. And so the more you can talk about the times you've been through it and how mm-hmm. you got through it and demonstrate that you can get through it, the more likely the, the child or the, the, the people who with you are leading, when the, when the time comes, they'll reach out to you if they need it. Um, mm-hmm. cause they'll see you as somebody who's, who's been there before and you become vulnerable to them. So they'll come to you. And also the more hope you'll give them because in those moments of acute anxiety, you feels hopeless. It feels like I'm never going to do this. I'm never going to, whatever the line is. Um, right. and, and if they can remember that, oh, I remember Evan told me about this time where he felt hopeless. Like he, he was stuck in this, then, then it mm-hmm. gives people something to grab a hold of when everything else sort of falls away. And so I think the more modeling and the more demonstration we can show about talking about anxiety and vulnerability, um, the more likely our people and our children will be able to cope with it when the time comes that, that they have to. Yeah. Cause it's I love not that a matter idea. of if it's just a matter of when. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That idea that experiencing anxiety is not weakness. If you experience a moment of anxiety, it's normal. It's not weakness. And sometimes it can be acute and it can be challenging and what we need to do to cope can be different. So I appreciate all of the, the wisdom and the thoughts and always enjoy the conversation. Looking forward to uh, getting together for our next one. And thanks everybody for tuning in or watching the video or checking out the podcast. We appreciate you and uh, don't hesitate to reach out through any of our social media. If you uh, have anything you want an episode about or Uh, anything that you uh, want uh, us to uh, answer any questions or anything like that. So thanks and uh, really enjoyed it. Thanks everybody. Just want to say thanks everyone for listening and thanks to Justin Patton who produces our podcast and also does the intro music. If you want to collaborate with Justin on a project, you can check him out at airgigs.com. That's Justin Patton at airgigs.com. Thanks, and we'll see you next episode.